If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The women's narrative we would like to think of is is that, you know, if we let women rule the world, it would be a much nicer place. But, you know, the truth is subtle and nuanced and complex. That was Max Adams talking about women through history. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. 
I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the historian and author Max Adams, whose latest book highlights the stories of some of history's most remarkable forgotten women. He met up with our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning, at the Yorkshire Museum in York, ahead of his talk at our History Weekend event there last year. Here's how the conversation went. So I'm at our annual York History Weekend with archaeologist and writer Max Adams. So Max has recently published a book called Unquiet Women, a collection of stories about remarkable women in history from the dusk of the Roman Empire to the dawn of the Enlightenment. So welcome, Max. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, So, well, we'll start with your book. Why did you want to write a book about women? Well, uh, when you read the introduction, you'll see that I have a, I come from a family of very, very strong women who've who've influenced me uh, in probably more ways than I know. My mother was one of 14, and I I have a large tribe of very, very self-confident and interesting aunts. Um, So that's, that's in my background. Um, But I'm, I'm often being taxed by readers and students with the fact that there aren't many women in the periods of history that I deal with. And I keep having to say, well, actually, those women are there. They're a little trickier to write into the big narrative, but they're there. And eventually I realised that I just was making an excuse for not writing something about women. And I thought I owed it to my family and to myself and, and to readers to actually go and put the effort in. And I've been collecting stories about women for ages and I'd given... I'd, I'd given a course, a lifelong learning course called Seven Women years ago. So I thought, right, now's the time. I will, I will write this book and I will, I will find the stories. There's only one criterion for getting in this book and it's that they interest me. And I, I trust that readers will be interested by the, the women in history who interest me. hope so. Great. And um, you focus on stories from the end of the Roman Empire to the dawn of the Enlightenment. Um, and that's, that's quite a broad span. Yeah. Was there a reason for this particular time period? Or is it just a coincidence that the women you chose? Well, I, the period I know best is the early medieval anyway. Um, and it struck me... Uh, and a, lot, a lot of women in the classical world are quite well known, um, whether it's empresses or poets... Um, and it struck me that the arrival of Christianity in, in the West after the Roman, well, in the late Roman period, heralds um, slightly more liberating, not role for women, but in having their voices heard, because um, Christianity offered women an equal place in heaven. And, you know, one of the two or three great Christian icons is the Virgin Mary. And in a sense, she represents the mother of everybody. So she empowered women to believe that they had a place in this new Christian world, including the afterlife, probably to compensate for the stuff that they had to put up with in their real lives. Um, So that was a good starting point. And increasingly, of course, we begin to learn about women who, who were holy women and saints. And my suspicion has always been that those holy women would have been holy women in the pre-Christian period. These are cunning women and healers and midwives, uh, women with aptitude and skill and intelligence whose stories otherwise aren't heard. And then going forward, it struck me that in about 1700, the trajectory of women's history changes for all sorts of quite complicated reasons, but the, the main one 
for me really is that infant mortality starts to decline drastically in the West. And that is a form of liberation for women in any case. I mean, my, my mother was one of 14. Her, <laughs> my grandmother, Constance Alexandra Corinna, um, bore 14 children. Childbearing and childrearing is not only incredibly dangerous, but it takes up your life mm -hmm. creatively and artistically. So it, it seemed a good bookend um, for a period in which the sorts of women I'm interested in shared experiences with each other, I think. Uh, so there was a common thread that runs through all these stories. I mean, it's often said that mainstream history is dominated by men and by men's narratives. And one argument for the lack of focus on women's stories is that, well, no one was bothering to write their stories down. So we just maybe don't have, a, have the evidence there to create a history for women. I mean, is that fair to say? In one sense, it is. The written narrative is overwhelmingly male, written and dominated by. However, one of the... Well, first of all, as an archaeologist, um, I know that in death, women become as visible as men. We excavate as many women as we do men. Mm. So that, that is an, an equality of a sort. And many years ago, I excavated the crypt at Spitalfields, which is one of the bookends for this book. And in Spitalfields, there are 52, 53% women. So their narratives in death are are equally present with men. So that's, that's one thing to say. In archaeology, women are much more visible than men. Although the written word is overwhelmingly a male narrative, there is another narrative, set of narratives going on which are uh, produced by female agency and authorship. And once you realise there's another narrative going on, you can begin to see how you might read it. And you want to know what that is, don't I you? I do, I do. <laughs> you knew exactly what I was going to say next. It's, it's textiles. Through most societies, women have been the textile producers, whether it's wool or cotton or flax or whatever, and to a very high level of sophistication. Two problems arise with the textile narrative. One is that it doesn't carry the same sort of narrative as writing. The other is that um, textiles are very vulnerable to decay. The oak gall link of the Lindisfarne gospel has survived 1,500 years effortlessly. And, of course, it, men are designing the technology to make their words permanent. Textiles don't preserve very well, uh, except in certain circumstances. So that's a big problem. How do, you, how do you get at that narrative when the textiles have largely gone? That is a problem. But if you start looking, those narratives emerge. And in fact, all, almost all the stories in this book have some connection with textiles, one way or the other. It's really amazing how it just comes out time and time again, um, even when that's not what you're looking for. Can you give us maybe an example of one of the women in the book whose story can be explained via textiles? Well, one of the stories that struck me most forcibly, and, and, it, and it runs counter to the idea that women's voices aren't heard, we, we know of a woman called Winflad who uh, made a will in the 10th century. She's an Anglo-Saxon woman. Now, she's a wealthy woman. And even though we can say that, generally speaking, women have been oppressed by men, uh, elite women were always better off than poor men. <laughs> uh, this woman, Winflad, uh, wrote a will in about the year 950, and we have it. And it's an incredible document. Um, it tells us about who was important to her. It tells us what things were important to her. It tells us about how she saw herself in the world and in the afterlife. So... 
First of all, she, leave, she, she has huge estates and she leaves these first to her daughter. Well, that's interesting. Does she have a son? She does have a son. Oh, interesting. And he does get stuff, but the bulk of the estate goes to her daughter, right? So this idea that women were not independent property owners is simply not true. Especially when, when you think of widowhood. A lot of men are dying younger than women in battle or from the physical drudgery of, of their work. And women widows can accumulate property. And a lot of women have been widowed more than once. In fact, some women make a business out of it. Okay, that's, that's a whole different narrative. So the thing is, women fled leads. She, well, she has a whole load of slaves. So, okay, the women's narrative we would like to think of is, is that, you know, if we let women rule the world, it would be a much nicer place. But, you know, the truth is subtle and nuanced and complex. These very rich women own slaves. Of course they do. They're Christian women, they own slaves. That, that doesn't contradict morally for them. However, because she's a Christian, on her death... It's a good thing for her soul to release her slaves, to, to give them freedom. And she gives most of her slaves freedom, but there are two slaves who she does not free on her death, and they're really, really interesting. One is her sewing mistress, and the other is her weaving mistress, right? These are the women who know the family textile narrative. They know the way that that family designs, weaves, and decorates textiles, so it's their brand in a weird way. They know the brand and they are bequeathed to her daughter so that that linear agency and authorship is passed down through the female line. Well, that's very interesting for a kickoff. Then, of course, we read about the things she leaves behind, her sewing kit, her weaving kit, her double badger-skinned gown. A badger-skinned gown, if, if yeah. If that's, that's what it is, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure it is. I, I think it might be something else. But um, Her tent... A tent. I mean, what would she have used a tent for? A red tent as well. It's a red tent, quite, so there's maybe a narrative in there. Well, um, elite people travel around all the time. They have to to go and collect the food from where it's produced so they can consume the surplus of the land. And they're always travelling. They're travelling to court. They're travelling to meet people. You know, they they move around the landscape. Um, And, of course, we know very little about Anglo-Saxon tents. And to have this this record of a red tent and the colour is especially <laughs> is interesting. Um, so, so that's fascinating. And then we realise that her most important possession is her bed. Now, isn't that interesting? Because we don't really think of beds as, as bequeathable possessions. We think of them as rather utilitarian. But we know from all sorts of other things that the women buried in the Oseberg ship in, in Norway were buried with a bed. In fact, I think they had several beds with them. These beds are beautifully ornate pieces of the finest workmanship. They're stunning things, decorated finials and turnals. We also know that in the 7th century, um, wealthy Anglo-Saxon women are being buried in their beds. Now, why is that? Well, we don't know, but it's clearly an important part of a women's narrative that that bed goes with her. So there are these stories about women's agency that are there. Mm-hmm. You can see why they're not getting into the mainstream narratives, but nevertheless, they are there and they seem to keep connecting with each other. Um, and if we had more textiles surviving, we would get a better story. In South America, we do have the textiles and there the story is much, is much stronger. Oh, that's interesting. It's dry. Ah, purely down to the weather. Here's this British weather again for a British history. There there is one instance in which textiles do survive. We we don't get much patterning in in medieval textiles, but 
Uh, most Christians, if they're not buried with uh, their possessions, they're usually buried in their clothes, sometimes with jewellery, or their knives or their chatelaines. And women are buried with the with the, the chatelaines that, that hold the keys to their household. Sorry, what is... What's a... Chatelaine, it's a little sort of belt fitting that from which you hang a set of keys ah. and, and tweezers and yeah. so on. And this is a woman's status as the head of a household. Because we, we forget that the house is... is the, the map of women's social geography. Mm-hmm. And we've got like, interesting accounts of how houses are designed so that women can control the space in them. It's um, the women's field. <laughs> their their well, battlefield. Well, there's, there's a whole area of narrative and story there. It's not written about very much because it seems mundane. It's not stories of kings and queens, but oh, it's much more interesting than kings and queens, I think. Um, anyway, when people are buried with metalwork... The, as, as the body decays, the, the clothes that they're in uh, rot and the corrosion of the metalwork absorbs the pattern of the textile into it. So if you look on the back of this metalwork when it's retrieved by archaeologists, it, it may not have the colours anymore, but we can tell what type of fabric it is. We can tell what weave count it is. We can tell if it's a twill or a broken twill or a diamond twill. Mm-hmm. So the technology of weaving, we have quite a lot of information about. In fact, we know a great deal about the technology of weaving. If we then suppose that that's the women's narrative, that means we've got a lot of things we can say about how women are using their space and their time and their craft to develop really quite sophisticated stuff. What we don't get is the really crucial bit. And that is that, imagine pretty much any item of clothing is going to have a decorated cuff and a neck and a hem. Those are the absolutely key things. Those things are woven on a tablet, which is a set of small square cards with holes in them. And you, the, 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 the yarn is threaded through them. You tie one end to a back of a seat, a chair or something. And you, you turn the cards over to create... It's basic digital computing. It's a digital patterning. It's an early knitting machine. Um, and these patterns are very geometrical because they're made on a grid. And every now and then you have to undo the tension so you unweave them and you get a reverse pattern. Right, OK. OK, so that's interesting. We, we do have some of these things, not, not nearly enough. Now, my contention, hard to prove, is that this is where the brand is. Winfred's family, it's, that's one of theirs. And this is what she wanted to preserve by passing down her seamstress and... I, I think so. I think that's right. And, um, and we know that, that women are not just clothing themselves, they're clothing their menfolk. So their menfolk who go to court or who are presented to their lord or fight in battle are wearing their colours, literally. Okay? And when these things are given as presents, that is a way of negotiating social power networks. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that narrative is there. We can't have much access to it, but we must accept that that is there, that although we've lost it, it is there. There is women's agency. So, for example, there's a pair of embroidered slippers by a holy woman in the 13th century. That ends up as a gift to the Pope. Now, that's, that's agency and power. Yeah, from from woman's narrative and authorship and craft. And I think we underestimate that agency. We'll come, ba- come back to this agency yeah, a yeah, bit yeah. later on because I want to explore that in detail. Yeah. Um, just quickly, though, before we go on to that, I wanted to ask you about women's history in general. 
Um, because women's history today is like well, it's its own topic. You know, at university you can choose modules to you can choose to study women's history in bookshops. They might have a women's history section. Mm. Um, on our website, we've got a women's history tab. Obviously, we don't have a men's history tab. But, I mean, just the his- the history is <laughs> the men's history. Do you think that we're going to get to a stage where we won't need to have these that this um, distinct category? If, do you think it's possible to get to that stage? Well, I'd like to think. I mean, I'd like to think that men can write about women and women can write about men. God, I hope so. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's absolutely vital that the balance is redressed. And if that means we have to have, I say we have to have, we have university courses and PhDs in not just women's history, but gender studies in general, which I, which I, I would separate out. I would say that women's history and gender studies are not quite the same thing. Um, I mean, I would, I, I would militantly defend the right of anybody to write about anything that they thought needed to be written about. And I absolutely would, would defend any woman's right to write her a story about men. And I don't think I need to defend myself. I, mean, I was going to say, have, have, you, have you thought about, yeah, have you wondered, oh, yeah, are have, people going to be like, oh, you're a man writing women's stories? Is that... I'm a historian writing about history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 I was like, oh, um, it's a book written by a man about women. But then I was like, actually, it would be quite nice if more men wrote stories about women. Well, And I'll, t- I'll tell you why I, I thought this as well, because when, when I was doing my A-levels, we had the first module we did was suffragettes. And lots of people chose history for A-level. And so we did suffragettes. And then what we were going to do after the suffragettes was um, World War II from Germany's perspective. Mm. Lots of the guys that are my classmates dropped out of history. They dropped it as a subject because they found the suffragettes. So we were given six weeks to decide if we wanted to carry on doing the course. And um, quite a number dropped out and they said, oh, well, it's, it's boring. And they didn't even, they were like, oh, I want to do the Germany bit, but um, this bit's boring. And I was just like, that's so, so sad. And I just feel if more men and boys could feel a bit more engaged with women's history, that that would help. But that's just my personal opinion. I completely agree. And I I think sometimes the way we're taught history is quite partisan. I don't think women should own the suffragette narrative any more than that men should own any any of their narratives. I mean, ultimately, the stories that I've found are stories available to anybody who, who bothered to look. Um, male or female, young or old, of any race or background, the stories are, are written there. I mean, the archaeologist has slightly more specialised access than many, many women archaeologists. Um, and those stories are available to be written. The, on, the only thing I, I really care about is that I'm not interesting, and they are. <laughs> so if, if the narrative becomes, why is a man writing about women's history, I think that would be a problem for me. Yeah. Because I'm not interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, sure that's not true, but, well, no, yeah. but, I mean, but in the mean, purpose of writing the book, yeah, yeah, it's all their voices. Yeah, quite. So, um, I, I mean, I think it's an interesting subject for debate, but I think you're right. I wish a lot more men would write a lot more about women in history, whether that's women's history. Mm. It's a distinction there, I isn't it? I think there probably is a distinction, yeah. And um, I also think... I mean, I had to, of course, you do a lot of reading for these things, and quite a lot of these stories, uh, 
have been first written down by men. Some are women's own stories, they've written them. And some are stories that appear in narratives that are not very accessible um, because they come out of a fairly um, narrowly constrained academic idea of gender theory. And that's how those stories have been, have been brought back out by you know, women writers and thinkers fighting to have those stories written. I'm the beneficiary of that work. And that the, what I can do is bring those narratives to a broader public, acknowledging the work of the people who've done the really hard work, the translators, the people who found out these sources. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's an 18th century Peruvian woman um, called Ana de la Calle. She actually has four names in the narrative. She changes her, her name and that of her children. Um, she's also a slave owner, but she's also a freed slave, and we have her will. And it's, it's a very, very interesting document. Um, she too is interested in her bed linen and, and where these things go to. And she makes a fascinating pair with Winfled, the Anglo-Saxon woman. Several, you know, almost a thousand years apart, these two women, 800 years apart. Um, the things that make those women interesting keep coming up in narratives. And the more you look at them from the point of view, supposing you could do that, of thinking about how women's stories are told, the more you realise that the evidence is out there and that you can construct it. Um, so for me, it has been hugely liberating. And, you know, for the record, there is no way that anything I write after this will not be much, much more aware of the possibilities of writing women into the narrative. For me, it's been a huge lesson. Yeah. I, you know, you have to go through that process of seeing those connections for yourself and going, oh, yeah, of course, that's how you can write about women. It's really easy to it's say a learning process we can't write about know. women because we don't have the... Well, we, we do. It's not true. <laughs> it, it, it requires a certain way of looking bit like looking at a map in a different way um, but once you've got that perspective for me as an author I can't I couldn't ever go back do you feel like your eyes have been opened and now you can't sort of shut them oh, completely been... <laughs> yeah and I, I've been talking to my my, my oldest surviving aunt um, about this because she's a weaver mm. uh, and we've talked a lot about textiles and weaving um, and of course none of this was any surprise to her and she kind of brought me up thinking about those things, but to think about them, to know they exist, is different from really understanding just what you can do with those apparently fairly slim lines of... You know, if, if I write a book about the Arthurian period, which is my next project, um, there's no way that I can now write that without thinking how I can write a lot more about women. Um, and I, and I think that's a really healthy thing for me as a writer. Yeah. Um, wish I'd done it sooner. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford. Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire. Or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Going back to this idea of women and agency. Mm. So we're we're sort of repeatedly told that women are the supporting characters through history. They were oppressed, they were exploited, they were uneducated. Mm -hmm. Um, But it sort of paints this picture of women as being these like meek victims through history, which isn't the case, as you described a few of these already. So perhaps you can tell us about instances of women, the the ones in your book, where they're they're showing remarkable agency or exercising power. It's true, I mean, you know... I'm a reasonably sharp-eyed archaeologist um, and even I've not been looking in the right places for this agency. Yeah, it is there. And I, I think it's, really, it's actually really lazy for us to write the narrative that allows us to not write about women because it's difficult to find the evidence there. Um, there's, a, there's a life, uh, there are any number of medieval saints' lives and they're very conventional, they tend to be pretty boring and quite difficult for a 20th century sceptical mind to digest. But some of them are, some of them stand out precisely because there's agency in them. So there's a, there's a woman called Christina of Marchiate. She's not the most famous woman saint. Um, I mean, Marjorie Kemp is in the book, she's much better known. Um, uh, Avil Flad, Lady of the Mercians is in there, St Hilde is in there. Um, Christina of Marchiate is something a little bit different because um, it appears that if she didn't write her own story, she at least dictated it. It's got agency written all over it. And this is a story of um, brutality, of deprivation, of isolation, of prejudice. And through it all, this unquiet mind, this restlessly curious woman who will not put up with that fights against it. And, you know, one of the lessons of of these stories is that women are oppressed by women as well as men. Men are oppressed by men and women. Women are oppressed by men and women. The the, the standard story that men oppress women is almost certainly true in a general sense. But every generation, there are women who will not put up with it. Uh, The women with wanderlust 
So the first story in the book is this extraordinary woman called Egeria. We don't know where she's from, Atlantic France or Atlantic Spain. As the Roman Empire is collapsing about us, she sets off on a little holiday for three years to the Holy Land. And I've said in the book, you know, if they ever make the film about her, it's too late because she would... Catherine Hepburn would have to have played her part. It's unquestionably, this sort of rather waspish, I say young man, you know what? <laughs> um, be so good as to carry my bag sort of thing. I mean, very waspish uh, sentiment, very matter of fact. Uh, a beautiful... She was a nun, was she? Well, we, yeah, she, caught, she writes home to her blessed sisters. That mm. sounds like she's in the community. Like she she's a clearly devoted Christian. And she goes to see the place where Christ was martyred. And she visits the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. She's one of the earliest witnesses to the, the, the development of the, um, the whole business of, of Jerusalem as the centre of the Christian faith. She's a remarkable witness. Very sharp-eyed, very matter-of-fact. She climbs Mount Sinai. She travels, I think, 3,000, over 3,000 miles. Oh, at least. At least, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is while the Roman Empire is supposedly collapsing. Collapsing around her. And the fact that most of this narrative travels. survives. You know, there, there's, a, there's a very strong woman's narrative. You know, the, she's, she's in the line of the great travel writers. Yeah. You know, Celia Fiennes, who's also in the book. Freya Stark, who's later. Um, lots and lots and lots of them. And, and people like Marjorie Kemp, who also went to Jerusalem and, and um, made a thorough nuisance of herself. But Christina Marquette's brilliant. I mean, her escape from bondage, um, I mean, stripped naked and beaten by her mother, that's an uncomfortable and shocking thing to read. So just for our listeners, who is she? Christina Marquette, she's, she's born in, in Huntingdonshire, if not Huntingdon. Um, and she, she arrives at a time when her parents are the first generation of people having to put up with the Normans. And they are a wealthy family and they have to integrate uh, with the new patrons in the land. And they allow her to be seduced, if that is not too kind a word, by a bishop. Which again is a quite shocking narrative. Um, and she spurns him. Um, she allows him into a room and then runs out and locks the door on him. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a great yarn. It's a brilliant yarn. And then she's beaten by her family for, for doing that, ruining that reputation. And then she's sort of taken under the protection of a local hermit or holy man. And she escapes in the dead of night, you know, with a horse waiting and, and a cloak, it's all cloak and dagger. And she's treated to extraordinary brutality by many, many people and then lives in desperate isolation for a long time until her, her reputation as a visionary, which in, of course, earlier times would have been, she would have been a cunning woman, you know, a seer, a shamaness, and there are, there are several shamanesses in, in this book. And they're, of course, an interesting set of uh, women anyway. You know, when is a shamaness also a midwife? When is she a witch? Crossover with medicine and superstition. Oh, completely, yeah. yeah that, that's another thing that comes very, very strongly through, that, that, um, that, that crossover between healing and prophesying and being visionary. And one thing that the the hermit movement does allow is women to be visionary hermits as well. It's much harder for them than for men because they don't have independent wealth. But she's an example of someone who does it. And she ends her life a very famous woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and her story deserves to be much better known than it is, especially as it, it seems to be largely her own story. And then, and then, of course, we've got the Paston family in the 15th century who's... Um, I mean, they're... They produce one of the great the sets of letters. Yeah. That's right. 
much studied. But if you take some of the stories of the younger women, the stories that they haven't written themselves, being written in a series of letters by their angry parents, because these girls won't marry the men they're supposed to marry. They're either old or crippled or, you know, I mean, repulsive old, you know, Dickensian type yeah. stuff. Or they already have a lover. Or in one case, um, a woman undergoes an unofficial form of marriage with the family steward. Oh, that must have been very controversial. A massive scandal. <laughs> and she's beaten to within an inch of her life by her mother. That's really hard for us to read. Yeah. Really hard to read. Well, there's another example of women can, how women oppress but can oppress women as well. Yeah, and, and the surprises you get when you read stories from the past. And she enjoy, un, enjoys a very uncomfortable relationship with her mother. Interestingly enough, she is sort of banished from the family and not allowed to inherit. The steward is kept on. <gasps> She can be got rid of, but a steward is a so too valuable man to get rid of. I mean, the hypocrisy. With rage. <laughs> it's sort of middle-class English hypocrisy. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely infuriating. Um, and, of course, one of the Paston girls um, is the author of the first Valentine letter, which we have, and that's a really beautiful thing because, as, as the end of the story says, you know, for all that middle-class um, snobbery and brutality, love sometimes did conquer all. And that's nice to be able to write about that too. it's nice that that's something that that continues yeah. over through history yeah um we've talked a bit about history is dominate how history is often dominated by men and male narratives but i think it's also probably fair to say that history is dominated by white or western narratives as well perhaps you can tell us about some of the remarkable women who feature in your book who are not western yeah i mean i'd like to spend another few years looking for stories that were hard. I mean, Muslim women are really hard to find stories about. I mean, there are lots of them um, in the narratives, but they're written about in a very patriarchal way, which is quite difficult to chew. Um, there, there are one or two Muslim women in there, including a rather wonderful um, bisexual 10th century poetess from Cordoba, who, um, when tried uh, for harlotry, um, she was, had, had very open affairs with both men and women. She attended the trial wearing a textile, a gown, into which had been woven. This is an, an Arabic, a, you know, a, a, an Arabic style of, of craftsmanship. Wearing a gown, which into which were woven the words, um, oh, I can't remember it now, but it, it basically says, "I will kiss whom I please," <laughs> and, uh, and I am my own person, and I will go my own way. I, I'll do what I want. And you think, wow, that's great. Um, I'd love to have written more about uh, women from Southeast Asia, but uh, I, I mean, I've written a short piece about the only Chinese emperor oh, who yes. was a woman, whether yeah. you call her an empress or an emperor. Um, she's a rather interesting woman. Um, and um, strangely enough, I wasn't expecting to find so many interesting stories in South America, but I found a lot in Central America, uh, Southeast, Southwestern United States and, uh, and South and Central America. Partly because the textiles survive, partly because stories survive about women that you wouldn't expect to. And the most exciting thing I found is a is a picture of a, a ceramic in in the in northwest Peru in the sort of old Inca but, but pre-Inca territories. There was a style of pottery which was called a stirrup cup, and it's um, it's a globular pot that's made in two halves in a mould, so it can be reproduced. It's a commercial product, and the range of designs is really quite extraordinary so um so these are anthropomorphic sculptures in in ceramic you've got sex not just sex but every conceivable position and you think that's not just about fertility because 
quite a few of those forms of sex are not reproductive. Yeah. Um, well, that's fascinating. You know, who's making those for whom and why? But there's a series of designs, or quite a few of them, which are cups. So they're stirrup cups. So they have, they have two tubes that go into one. The idea is that as you're drinking out of it or pouring it, air comes in through the other one. So it's technically very advanced pottery, way ahead of anything we're doing in Europe at the time. This is 7th century, 6th, 7th century. There's a series of designs that, pick, that depict childbirth. Okay? They're always a seated woman in the act of childbirth. Okay? So you see, see the full thing. There's a woman behind holding on for dear life. Yeah. Okay, they're sit, in a sitting position. They're sometimes naked. They've sometimes got tunics on. The woman behind is kind of both embracing and shoving at the same yeah. time. And usually in front, and this is all part of the same piece of pottery, there's a midwife. I mean... It, it, I can only describe her as being in a sort of slip-catching position. Yeah. Like in cricket. And there's the baby's head emerging. And you think, well, who are you making this for? Because if you're making that for a pregnant woman, it slightly leaves Might you a hostage. Might put you off a little bit. <laughs> slightly leaves you a hostage to fortune. Is it the midwife's calling card? Does the vessel contain some special unguent or oil or, 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 or drug that's helping the birthing process? Is it advertising midwife? Who knows? We will never find out. But that... It's just such an extraordinary piece of art. It's really nice to hear about women expressing their sexuality and expressing these real, real, what it means to be a woman. Because I think, I think it's, we have a danger of thinking of women in the past. It, with, well, I think it may be the Victorian period has some responsibility for this, of yep. everything being so prude and sexually repressed. But it's just nice to hear about that. It is, and I think you're absolutely right that the Victorians have got a lot to answer for. They, they were, most of the narratives our generations grew up with were written initially by Victorians, and I think we have to um, scrape off the dark varnish of Victoriana and get back to... I mean, I've written before about women in the 18th, 19th centuries. You know, the first person ever called a scientist was a woman. Um, the, the person who wrote all the infant custody laws to liberate women from male oppression in the 19th century, Caroline Norton, a woman. Who's ever heard of Caroline Norton? Some people have, but not many people. Um, which is why I say that in the 18th, 19th centuries, there's a rather different trajectory. There are many, many more women visible and writing. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, I, the book isn't the length it is, about 240 pages, 50 stories in it. There are, there are not just 50 stories in there because I could only find 50 stories. I could have quadrupled that number of stories very, very course, easily. Sure, yeah. um, and I've selected them carefully because I think the stories speak to each other as well as having individual interest. But the stories are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all historians of all hues and aptitudes, um, and I speak you know, especially for myself, have a duty to keep their ears tuned a bit more finely. I mean, that, for me, that's the way I describe it. You have to tune your ear a bit more finely to those stories and not just allow yourself to be lazy in accepting this idea that women don't have agency, they don't have a voice, they're either, they're either nuns or queens or invisible. It's just not true. And I wish people would get over obsessing about queens. <laughs> I mean, I really, you know, I really when you think do. of women in history, oh, I feel really bad because I'm actually wearing a, a t-shirt right now with yeah. Queen Elizabeth on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it, it, it um, is obsessive. We did our top hundred women vote poll, and I mean, a lot of the women who were in this. Although actually, no, Queen Elizabeth wasn't even in our top hundred women. 
maybe that's a step in the right direction then. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe. But I, I think we should stop obsessing about queens because apart from anything, uh, uh, there's a, a brilliant uh, Geordie philosopher in, in the um, late 17th, early 18th century called Mary Astle. Again, not many people know about her, but she was brilliant. She, she wrote uh, a tract, an anti-marriage tract called um, A Serious Proposal to the Ladies. It's Fabulous piece of. She was a, oh no, I think I've read this. She was a brilliant writer, um, and she came up with this thing that I call the petticoat fallacy. Can I just read it to you because it's the frontest piece of the book? Yes. Because it, I used it because it, I, I aimed it ironically at myself. Of course, um, it, she says this. This is from a book called The Christian Religion in 1705. Since the men, being the historians, they seldom condescend to record the great and good actions of women. And when they take notice of them, tis with this wise remark, that such women acted above their sex, by which one must suppose that they would have their readers understand that they were not women who did those great actions, but that they were men in petticoats. Wow. The obsession with queens is, is suffering from the petticoat fallacy. And I will, I, you know, from now on, for me, that's the petticoat fallacy. And nobody could ever have put it better than Mary Astle. It's a brilliant piece of writing. I love it so much. And of course... That's the frontispiece. I aim it squarely at myself. So they go, humble pie. But it's great. On that note, um, just looking at the time, I think we've got to wrap up for today. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming on our podcast. That's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you. That was Max Adams. Unquiet Women, From the Dusk of the Roman Empire to the Dawn of the Enlightenment, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. And look out for a review of the book, in the February issue of BBC History magazine, which goes on sale later this month. Meanwhile, our January edition is currently on sale and includes articles on the Treaty of Versailles, Mary Queen of Scots, the World War II battle for Norway and the history behind the film The Favourite. Look out for it now in all good retailers and our many digital formats. And as I mentioned earlier, this talk was recorded at our History Weekend event in York. You can now book tickets for our next event, which is a Kings and Queens-themed weekend that takes place in Oxford on the 2nd and 3rd of March. Find out more details and book tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. And that is all for today, but we will return on Thursday with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner Hotels. For instance, Little Coat House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.